Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, where we learn from successful founders of unicorn startups how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya Hegde, and today we'll be diving into the story of weights and biases. Started in early 2018, this is a developer-focused ML ops platform last valued over $1 billion. Now, if you're trying to put an ML model into production as a part of your core product experience in a company, you need to be able to manage it effectively, right? You need to be able to experiment with it, track different versions of it, collaborate over it across all these different people in the company who want to make sure that the model is doing what it's intended to do. And uh, this is actually a really hard problem, given the complex nature of machine learning of models for both uh, data scientists and developers. So over half a million people today from 700 companies use weights and biases to manage their ML models. And our guest today is their CEO, Lucas Bewold. Uh, Lucas, welcome to the Field Guide. Thanks. Thanks for that nice introduction. That was a great overview of weights and biases. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and, you know, I think the reason I'm so excited to have you on the field guide and talking about this is that, you know, you've been in this space for over 20 years now, which, you know, makes you one of the veterans. So you started working in Stanford's AI lab back in 2003. Uh, you started your first company, which also helped people get ML models in produ into production in 2007. And so I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about your journey so far, like what inspired you to start Crowdflower and, and, and then weights and biases and, you know, and, and how you look at the big picture of you know, AI evolving in the past uh, couple of decades. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was a little kid, I was thinking about AI and I was thinking you know, kind of what we, maybe we all think are just like, wow, like what a cool thing that computers can learn to do stuff and you don't have to program them. And I sort of thought in my head, like I was imagining, okay, this is probably like the last job that people will do. I'm actually not sure if that's true um, anymore, but that just seemed so interesting and exciting. Um, and then I, you know, I went to Stanford and I, I was um, studying AI at a really different time when it wasn't so exciting, like things weren't really working. Um, and when I was in the AI lab, it's funny because so many people there went on to be really famous and successful, um, but it definitely didn't feel like that at the time. It just felt really frustrating. Like, you know, nothing was working. I mean, I was trying to do these essentially like toy problems and I couldn't even get the toy problems um, to work very well. Right. And and so, you know, I actually left to to start a company really out of frustration that it felt like all the problems we were working on were just problems where there happened to be data available. And so what Crowdflower did was it collected training data for people trying to build machine learning models. Um, and it was really early. I mean, I really started it with this idea that, um, you know, this would just be useful. I, I mean, back then, I mean, Y Combinator had just started, but there wasn't the same sense of like, you know, lots of people should start companies. And, you know, I mean, I remember my first decks being advised to remove any mention of AI, um, you know, from the the pitch deck, which is so funny compared to now. 
Right, um, because there were these like waves of skepticism, right? Yeah. Where people were like, oh, yeah, this is finally going to work. And Lucas is perfect. He has a background in math. He has a background in CS. He'll figure it all out. But then you know, there are lots of companies struggling, like you said, to even like make the toy demo yeah, uh, yeah. be an effective demo. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, I, I had no idea like the difference between like, you know, sales and marketing or how you know, that might work. It took me over a year to raise the initial, um, you know, money for, um, for crowdfunding. We raised a hundred K and I was like, what are we going to do with all this? Um, we raised a hundred K at a $2 million valuation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, um, so that was like a really long journey. And I mean, I learned a lot, changed a lot, you know, got married, had a kid. And, and I was thinking, um, when Crowdflower sold, um, you know, what's the company that I really want to do? And actually it's, I had, one of the things that happened to me was I'd, I'd kind of gotten interested again in, in machine learning. And I was sort of feeling like I spent so much time running companies that I'm kind of becoming a dinosaur. Like some of my core assumptions were being challenged. Like, you know, for a long time, we just thought trading data was the most important thing. And like, right. you know, the different kinds of models don't really matter. Like, you know, so, and people were constantly claiming I have a better model that works way better and they kept being wrong. And so there's a lot of skepticism about neural networks and, and deep learning. Um, but then, you know, I remember when AlphaGo uh, beat the best Go players, a real wake up call to me where I was just like, you know, this is real and this is totally different and it's so exciting. Um, <clears throat> and so I actually worked with a new co-founder and my old co-founder and we really wanted to make... Um, like a product for uh, the machine learning practitioners building models. At the time we were looking around and there was really good products like, you know, Domino Data Lab and, and right. Data uh, Robot, but they were so top down. They weren't really things that we wanted to use ourselves. Um, and it's so funny because all these things were like actually contrarian in 2018 when we started it. Like I remember we had to convince investors that new tools were needed for machine learning. We had to convince investors that machine learning was an interesting um, you know, market to, to actually work in. Um, and, and we had to convince investors, can you believe it? We had to convince investors that like a bottom up strategy or product led growth was actually like a good idea. Um, right. I mean, all those things went from quickly from contrarian to like incredibly mainstream, but right. I guess that's how those things, um, those things go. Yeah. I, I have a few follow-up questions. So I think the, um, 2018, you know, while in some ways, the future was already here, right? Like the, yeah. <laughs> the first LLN, the transformer methodology, like that's kind of already here, only no one has paid atten true attention. Uh, so I'm curious, like, what was that aha moment like for you? How did you dig in when you first, you know, like read about uh, the transformers architecture, you know, attention is all you need? Like, how, how did you respond to kind of diving back into that world and then you know in terms of industry adoption like there was very little adoption of deep learning at the time people were you know using ml in production but very few companies were so i'm curious like in your mind how have you thought about that dichotomy of like okay there's like this really advanced technique that a, a very small handful of people are working on and understand. And then most people don't know how to leverage it or deploy it. 
Uh, I'm I'm curious who kind of your early design partners were for your vision of of weights and biases, and like what were they trying to do with ML models? I think our starting place was not like you know like super strategic or something that like you know McKinsey consultant would like come up with. I think that our our real logic was like you know, we, we love this technology and we love what it looks like it can do. And it's so exciting. Like, we just want to, you know, be part of this. And so, um, I had actually done kind of an unofficial internship at OpenAI where I just said, Hey guys, like, can I, um, I'll work for free and I'll do whatever you want. Um, and I actually just, I worked with like, I think it was like a 24 year old grad student, just kind of being his like minion, um, you know, coding up, um, random stuff for him. It was actually really a helpful experience to just sort of get back in the flow of like right. making stuff, but also kind of quickly get up to speed on, you know, what was going on in deep learning. Like, I, you know, I'm the kind of person I can only really learn by doing. Um, and so uh, that was like a really core um, design partner in a way. Like they used our stuff um, really early. And then um, we also, uh, we did a lot of work with... Um, Toyota in the early days. I mean, we obviously like begged everyone to like take a look at what we were doing and no one was interested. Um, and Toyota was kind of like, um, I mean, well, actually what we said to Toyota was like, look, we'll do whatever you want. And we were even asking them like, hey, we'll just like come sit in your office and literally do whatever you want. And they, they actually wouldn't let us like badge in and, <laughs> and do um, random work for them, but they were willing to meet with us um, right. weekly. And I think we kind of proved to them uh, that we'd really listen to them and kind of iterate, um, you know, with them. And so it was actually the combination Toyota and OpenAI were two really early um, design partners. I mean, we wanted more, but just people weren't willing to like play with our um, nascent libraries. And, uh, you know, again, it took a long time. I mean, it was probably a year of like just mostly working with them, not as like a strategy, but just as like literally we couldn't get anyone else interested in, um you know, and what we were doing. And, you know, one thing that I've observed is often when you're building, a, you know, dev tool, you want to go bottom up, it's all the startups that adopt you first and try you out. Like uh, for prototyping, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of customers, they are risk over, they're less risk averse. They'll they'll try the new tool really quickly. However, if I think about 2018, Training data was still a blocker for people to actually deploy models. So, you know, small startups can't really, you know, do it. Most small startups can't do anything. It is the yeah. big companies. Yeah. Which which were the big companies that you saw actually using ML in production well? Like who who was your, you know, list of like, this is what best in class looks like? Uh um, outside of OpenAI and Toyota, like were there other companies that you would call kind of, you know, at, on the bleeding edge? Yeah, I mean, you know, so my last company, Crowdflower, we also like sold into um, ML companies. So I did kind of know um, the space. And I think um, who is doing it well? I mean, well is an interesting question. I guess for me, like doing it well means you have a thing deployed that's doing something useful um, for someone. Um, and, you know, it's it's sort of like industry by industry. Like, I think, like, at that time, autonomous vehicles was, like, a really big emphasis for, like, every car company. Right. Um, and then there were, like, a lot of startups doing it. Um, and, 
I mean, I remember Cruise seemed like they were really doing a good job and like Waymo seemed really exciting. Um, back then, uh, there was a lot of emphasis for like e-commerce and and search. And so you'd see like, you know, Amazon and eBay and kind of the big um, commerce companies really cared about this and had had good um, methods. But I think, you know, this was like kind of like before the explosion of applications and it was pretty... Um, it's pretty vertical specific. Like that's one of the problems we had at Crowdflower. You know, when we started the company, we kind of got like Google and eBay as customers. And then there wasn't that much more of the market to to go to. Like it took a long right. time before their folks um, caught up. And I think at the end of the day, machine learning is pretty enterprise heavy, right? Like enterprises tend to have the most data. Right. Um, you know, but I, I think a lot of startups are too, they're, more scared to sell to enterprises than they should be. And I think, you know, VCs often are nervous about advising companies to sell to enterprises. Like, I think if you're going to be in machine learning, you have to sell to enterprises. Like, there's not really like a startup, much of a startup market for um, ML. Yeah, outside of prototyping, which you'll find, you know, hundreds of. But I, I, that's, I think that's a fabulous point. Um, I'm curious, so how... Uh, what were some of the early use cases that you could see were just resonating a lot more with people as opposed to just kind of the whole platform approach that, you know, you eventually have every successful customer adopt? What was what was like the first thing people like just desperately wanted to do with weights and biases? Yeah, and I think like, you know, our approach has always been to, I think in contrast to a lot of our competitors, a lot of our competitors, they want to build the full platform first. Right. And we've been much more narrow in scope. Like, I don't think we even now have a complete, you know, set of like offerings. Like we try to kind of nail the specific pain points. And the first pain point that really resonated, which still resonates today, is um, logging what's happening during training. So we call hey. that experiment tracking. Hey. Um, and it's so funny because investors thought that was like really niche. Like they hated that, um, like that use case. And I actually think like there's kind of a lesson there. Like I kind of look for products that, you know, like every investor has like these workflow diagrams and, and they're, they're like really well researched. They're like reasonable. They're like reasonably accurate. But I kind of look for products that don't live in those diagrams yet customers want them. Because like, of course, like, Amazon and Microsoft, they'll build the stuff that's like in those right. workflow diagrams, but it's kind of the stuff that doesn't show up there where they're like real pain points that I think everybody misses. And so, yeah, like experiment tracking, like now it's so funny, like people kind of inject it like into the the workflows. But at the time, what we knew was like, I mean, it's actually as simple as this. People were like logging to a thing called TensorBoard at the time. And then they were having trouble sharing it because TensorBoard was hosted locally. And so like people would, you know, get some result. And then they would like actually like literally like screenshot um, the TensorBoard right. and like email it to their colleagues. And then when the colleagues wanted to like pull it up, they like couldn't because it like ran locally. That was actually the pain point we saw. Really, really specific. Feels niche. Um, but I don't know. Like I, I think we just really wanted to solve. I mean, we're kind of desperate to like just get people to use our tools by any means necessary. So it's sort of like, okay. We know like one person will use this, right? And so, you know, we got our friend at Toyota to use it and he was happy, you know, and then we got our friend at OpenID to use it and they were happy. Um, it wasn't like a really like big um, top-down scheme. It was like, it was just like we were desperate to get people to use um, anything. 
And so walk me through kind of maybe the first 12 months of weights and biases. Like at what point did you have enough people using that, you know, first feature or two that you felt comfortable saying, okay, let's open this up. Let's see who else is interested. What was your approach to kind of doing a GA launch if it was, you know, in your first year? Okay, well, we might need to go to like the first two years to actually get okay. to someone actually using our product. But what we would do, um, so me and my co-founders, we would go and we would like rent like a cheap Airbnb in the woods or something. And we would just spend like a week just like nonstop, um, like working together. And then we would like take it and we'd show it to our, you know, whoever, like literally we would beg people to like look at it and try or like our library and stuff. And um uh, it's funny, Sean, one of my co-founders called it demo-driven development because we were really just trying to make like demos that were like convincing enough that someone would even like take a like a longer meeting with us. Right. And it was really hard. Like, you know, we would kept showing people. I remember we spent a whole week like building this thing that actually turned out to be the pro like the experiment tracking product. And we built it for Toyota because this guy, Adrian, hopefully he's listening to this. I remember Adrian was like, I need this product. And then we built it. Like we built a whole product in a week. I mean, it's three good engineers just cranking together. And then like Friday afternoon, we like drove up from like Santa Cruz where we were staying to their office and like showed it to them. And he's like, oh, I don't know, like I'm not that interested in this. Of course, we were like pretending like, you know, we like had that product like the whole time. Right. You know, right. Um, and we showed it to him. He's like, I don't know, like it's not that cool. Like, you know, I want to do this other thing called hyperparameter optimization. And it was like so deflating, but like you pretend like, oh yeah, like, oh, we also have hyperparameter optimization we'll, like, show that to you, like, next on the week, roadmap you know? like yeah, coming yeah, up <laughs> yeah exactly um and then um it kind of like the traction was really slow like i remember having conversations with you know my co-founders like does anyone actually like want this and um i don't know like it just uh, i mean we had a few people using it i mean it's not even like they loved it um and then we um, we did this thing. I'm telling you like the true story. Maybe you should like edit this for brevity. Perfect. But the other thing we were doing <laughs> is like we also, like I was doing classes in machine learning at the time. Hmm. And so I was just like desperate for people to use my stuff. So I was like, maybe we could modify this to like work for our classes hmm. that we're doing. And there we would get like 40 people to use it all at once because they were just in the class. Right. Um, and that was like interesting because you would really feel the onboarding, you know? So like, we would right. try to get 40 people to use it. It would break for like 10 of them, 10 other people would be confused. It was actually really stressful because I'd be like standing there like, oh no, like, you know, and then my co-founder Chris would be like, you know, just like sitting with people's laptops quickly trying to get them right. to use it. So that actually got our onboarding, I think better than, um, like way better than it would have been otherwise. Um, and then we, we, um, we got a little bit of traction. It was like pretty flat. I'm talking about like 20 weekly active users, you know? And um, and it was like this really this moment, um, this guy, uh, Hamill, I hope he doesn't, I hope people might be naming them. I, I say this all with like love. Um, Pavel Hussein, uh, he was working at GitHub at the time and we were really trying to get him to use it. And I remember he, it was Thanksgiving. He called me and, and he's basically like, Lucas, I got to tell you, like, I think your product is good but it is like so ugly like so like like the ux is so unbelievably bad that i'm gonna like use your competitor that has like you know like worse scalability and like worse like features just because their ux isn't so like awful 
Oh no. And then and so I felt so bad. And then I I I started like a panic with my two co-founders. Like we just have to like, you know, we had what we called like a a bug bash where we that we like went in a room for a week and instead of like building new functionality, which is what we'd always done before, we just kind of cleaned up the UI everywhere. And it was funny that actually really um I think that was the moment where the product started growing. And it was like slow growth, but it was the thing that really felt promising to me was it was so steady. Like, you know, like we had 20 people one week and then we had like 23 people the next week and like 26 people the next week. And I remember like showing my, um, you know, our small angel investors at the time. I was like, you know, I think this is like kind of got legs, like it's kind of taking off. And they're like, man, look at these numbers are like so small. I remember they were like, call me, call me when you have like a thousand right. weekly active users. <laughs> this is ridiculous. You have like 25 users and you're like proud of it. But it was like the same ones coming back and each week it was like a little more. Yeah. And I think I'd just been doing startups for so long that I'd never really seen that before. Like each week we have more users than the week before. And that just felt like so good. Like we just felt so much like promise because it really just felt like we were like building in this way that we had never experienced. And then, um, you know, so we got really excited about like finding other ways to get... Um, you know, more, more users in the product and using, um, the product. And, and that actually, ever since then, it's felt like we had some kind of product, um, market fit. So I do actually think it was actually this, this Hommel, um, you know, complaint that really, I think that's the moment where it started to take off, but I don't know. I was actually going back and looking at this because I think this would be really useful to know, like, as we launched like more products, like what was the thing that made experiment tracking take off? Cause it's definitely flat for like, 18 months, I think, yeah. and, then, um, and then started to grow. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly what was the, it wasn't like there was major functionality change. I really think it was that UX cleanup inspired by one person saying they're going to go with a competitor product. I mean, it speaks to like the value of having design partners who give you like brutal feedback and just say what they are thinking and feeling, right? Yeah. It's incredibly valuable. Um, so this is 2020 now. You have, you know, you started with like a nice cohort of 20 weekly active users who are happy. They are coming back. They're telling other people about your product. What was the persona like from the early days? So you just always focused on developers or, you know, given, especially given it's still 2020, was it, you know, a mix of actually like data scientists, statisticians, developers, like, you know, both people who are coding versus people who are just kind of focused on the math behind the model at the time. Well, I think one thing that's really worked for us really well has been, I mean, we started the company with a user profile in mind. And, and that was basically, we call it ML practitioner. And we, we, picked, a, we picked a word for that person um, that's not a title because I actually think the titles are kind of confusing. Like what makes somebody right. in our, in our ICP is that they are like their job is building and deploying, um, ML models. And I feel like I've been fighting this fight with investors, like from the very first day where like, I apologize like, on behalf of my entire no, no. profession. <laughs> no, no, I get it. I actually totally get it. You know, and, and maybe it's stupid, but it's just like so clarifying to have like a single ICP. I really think that's one of the things that's really at the core of why our product is so loved 
because, you know, it's like, I think if, if you have like two profiles and, and you could argue that we should, right? I mean, there's MLOps persona, there's like a executive persona. These personas do matter. But I think when you try to please a lot of people, obviously you don't end up really pleasing like anybody. And I just seem like, look, the product is made for this particular persona. I hmm. can tell you all about her. Like, and, and, um, and that's just been like our true north since the company started. I've just been sort of obsessed with keeping the focus on that. And like tons right. of objections, right? Like people are like, okay, this is too narrow. It's too specific. Um, yeah, the market's bigger. You can make more money like selling into like executives. Maybe all true, but at least I think we have a cohesive strategy and a cohesive product. So I'll follow up question there, which is, you know, when you talk about kind of really building only for this ML practitioner, like the person is going to deploy it, manage it. What are examples of like adjacent needs or use cases that so far you have said no to, which, you know, someday as the company grows, you might um, think about, but like, what are the obvious adjacencies you've had requests about that so far you have said no to, to like maintain your focus? Oh, there's so many. Uh, because like, the space is so exciting and change, and growing so fast, right? There's there's like a lot of demand for different things. So um, the obvious place where we could expand it to, and and I reserve the right to do this. Um, but <laughs> I, I will permit no. it. I will yeah, permit yeah. it. No um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, so th there's this MLOps persona that's that's really important inside companies. And, and they're actually not ML practitioners typically, right? They're they're usually actually people with more of a DevOps background that is trying to make a reliable internal platform, um, you know, to to deploy the models. And I have a lot of empathy for them, right? That's a hard job, right? It's sort of like they're doing what we do, but internally trying right. to get ML practitioners to like, you know, do, you know, follow like a cohesive process and make their stuff reliable. And so like one thing that they really want is like infrastructure. And we've really decided not to do um, infrastructure, even though I think it's a huge pain point, right? Like, you know, like the place where you where you run your models and like making that reliable is like, of course, like a huge problem. But it just felt like um, a big distraction. And we want to integrate with other people's, you know, infrastructure. Like we don't want right. to compete with all the infrastructure providers. And so um, that's been one of these things where it's like, wow, there's so much money to be made in that. But you know, we want to maintain our um, focus. And the ML practitioner, I think, cares less about this um, than the ML ops, um, you know, personas. So if you were serving them, you'd definitely um, orient towards um, infrastructure. And then there's like the executives that care about all kinds of different stuff um, than the ML practitioner. They often, I feel like, they just want like a checklist of um, features. Like they, like, so like the practitioner wants tools that solve their problems that they face daily, right? And they actually want flexibility to know that, hey, if there's like a different tool that's better, I can like go and use that. For some reason, executives really seem to want like to buy one product that will solve like all their problems. Yeah. And I just I actually think that's like a terrible idea, but it is like very pervasive, um, you know, in the market. And so um, I, I, I'm at the point where it's like, look, if you pull out like a feature checklist, we just lose and we love that we lose. Like we, we lose to like every competitor. We have like less features than all our competitors. And, you know, like we just do. And, and it's like, if, if you're just looking for like checking every box in like an MLOps platform, we're going to lose. I mean, 
we do have good integrations with other tools that will like check the boxes where we're right. um, missing, but we're just not gonna, um, we're just not gonna make like crappy software. I think that, you know, is very strategically aligned to also pursuing a bottom-up motion, right? Totally. Where yeah. like, yes, the exec cares about like, oh, I need to buy software that solves these 17 problems. If you could do all 17, it makes my work easier. So could you? But your end user is like, no, I only work on two of those 17 and I want the best solution for those two. Yeah. So if you're focusing on like customer love in terms of, you know, who's actually using you, it makes more sense to be narrow, not build the others until, you know, you have the right scale. I'm curious. So going back to 2020 when you first started taking off, uh, you know, your UX is now better thanks to Hormel and the word is spreading. So I kind of have two questions. One, like what was what were the tactics you were using to grow awareness about weights and biases? Like what worked, what didn't work in terms of just like growing that early user base? And two, like what were surprises for you in terms of, you know, what people were saying about it, what pe how people were using the product? Do you remember any nuggets from, you know, the early days where you're like, oh, I did not see that coming? I think both of these ideas were kind of due to our now head of growth. So we had this woman, Lavanya, who was um, an engineer, but she really had like a knack for um, like growth. And so she really ended up um, like driving a lot of our growth. Of course, it was a team effort, but I feel like she had these like just clever ideas actually that were like surprising. So um, one thing, um, that we did was we made this feature called um, reports. And actually it's funny, there's this engineer, John, who built reports and he was like, he told me, he was like, this is so stupid, Lucas. Like people don't wanna share um, their stuff inside of the um, inside of the application. Like they wanna put it in like Notion or some nice place to, right. they'll, they'll like paste it. <clears throat> and I was like, you know, I think they do wanna share it inside of um, weights and biases, but I actually had some self doubt. And I remember really doubting Okay, John is like running a project that he thinks is stupid. Like this seems like it's destined for failure. <laughs> and then he actually, he made like such a beautiful um, reports feature. Like he really wanted to use it. Like he did actually just a killer job right. with it. I couldn't believe it. Because usually that's like bad management, right? Like people should believe in their, um, their task. And then um, what Lavanya did was she got our users to um, publish reports publicly. And then she worked with this other guy, Axel, to actually SEO it really well, which I was also really skeptical. Like, I was like, I don't know, does SEO really work? Like, for us, it really worked. So, like, people were publishing lots of content, very long-tail content. I mean, this is, I'm talking, like, super technical, you know, like, you know, maybe there's, like, a hundred or a thousand people interested in it, but those people are very interested, and so they stay, like, searching for it, and we're the only place where, you know, it exists. I'm just, like, you know, one graded scent method versus another or like. Right, um, right. And so um, that became our best way of getting users on our platform because the cool thing is like people were using our platform or using our platform to like publish their work. And then people are actually like seeing how the product works um, through SEO first. And so a lot of people, they like kind of know us in this place where they like learn about, um, you know, machine learning for a long time before they ever even go in and um, and use it. So um, right. 
that's actually our, our main way that we find users. And I really like it because it's very, very organic and it also just has steadily growth. So at first it was small, really small for a long time. It was like, oh, we got like five new users like last week from this strategy. Uh, but Levanya really believed in it. And I think she knew that, or, or she kind of saw that you could grow it over time versus right. like, yeah, if you get press like once, you might get a huge influx of users, but it's just that one time. Yeah, it doesn't this sustain. Much, yeah, it doesn't sustain. This is much more steady. Makes sense. And there was no like confidential data in the things they were publicly publishing. So they your users felt comfortable doing that. Well, this is, I mean, you know, it's funny, right? Because like reports is used for confidential data internally. Right. And then um, also like, you know, like there's a, in, in our market, machine learning, there's a lot of academics and a lot of academics use our product. So we've made it free for them. Got and it. they like to publish things especially. But, you know, we love it actually. I mean, every so often we can convince a customer to publish something publicly because, um, you know, they want to share, they want to recruit or something like that. And those tend to um, to work really well also. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that really helped Amplitude spread within the companies once we were adopted was a very similar feature where you could share like a public URL link for some specific dashboard or chart with everyone in the company and people could like click and interact with it even if they weren't, you know, signed up to use Amplitude at all or, you yeah. know didn't have access to Amplitude because then big enterprises, like they didn't, no one really has like true data democracy in terms of who has access to what data for, you know, good and bad reasons. Um, and they, you couldn't really do that with any existing analytics tool. Like either you had access to the whole tool or it was screenshots, like you couldn't really have anything interactive. So yeah, if there are any founders working in data listening to this, you know, here's one guaranteed tip. <laughs> yeah, you better try as well. Um, no, that, that that's a really awesome story. And and were you getting any, you know, surprises in the in the customer feedback once people started using, you know, weights and biases, discovering it in the wild? Like what what were some good and bad surprises for you? Well, I mean, I'll say like one really positive surprise has been um, like how passionate people are about their um, experiment dashboards. Like I, I still don't feel like I quite understand like the level of um, enthusiasm that people have. And I've been doing this a long time. So it's like, you know, my last company, we collected training that it was very useful. Right. Um, but, you know, with weights and biases, like people will sometimes just post videos of how much they love the product or they'll write in and say, um, you know, I, um, uh, like, like often it's like, Hey, I found this bug and it's a bad bug, but they'll be so nice about it. Like, they'll be like, you know, but I love your product and like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, it's like, um, it's like awesome. And I, I mean, I don't, you know, I know this is like a podcast for founders. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but that really has been like an interesting surprise is how passionate uh, people have gotten about the um, the product. I think like the other surprises maybe has been um, like the requests that people have um, have been really interesting and they've led us in interesting um, directions. Like I think, um, uh, you know, we have this new product called Launch, which was really pulled from tons of user feedback of like wanting um, to basically launch jobs from the weights and biases interface. Mm. And that's a funny one. Cause like, I'm, I think I'm a little bit older than our 
our audience and I'm just like really comfortable inside a terminal. Like I just, you know, shell into a machine and like run stuff. And I think that um, like our audience is more interest seems like very interested in like web UIs yeah. um, to, to do more. That's been a real learning. I mean, in general, like, you know, notebooks are really per- pervasive among our audience that, that we don't know. I think, you know, me and my co-founders often joke like, um, you know, I'm the one in our founding team that kind of understands like infrastructure the least. And I think I think they sometimes talk about they like sort of build for me because like I'm like <laughs> kind of hazy on like how like Docker works and like you know Git works and so um, <clears throat> I think a lot of our product is like abstracting away some of these concepts for like right, machine learning right. people who are like me just like I don't know like I can Google stuff but I'm <laughs> you know like I'm a little bit confused about right. you know, they, so you yeah. have you have to like pressure test it by seeing if Lucas can make it work yeah yeah I'm like seeing what, what Lucas like <laughs> thinks about it you know. Um, I'm also, it's funny, there's another joke that, like, I, I can't, like, read. Like, I'm, like, illiterate. Um, and, and and so what they do is they make the quick starts really short. But I actually think it's really important. Like, I just, I don't know why everyone makes their quick starts too long. And it's funny, like, when I'm, like, looking at a new product to consider using it, I feel like when the quick start is, like, too many steps, I, like, really don't want to use it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, this is the big challenge for all, like, product-led uh, companies, companies that aspire to have great self-serve experiences is like, how long is your customer's attention span? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, and how do you, how do you like keep their attention every five seconds? Right? Like, I think it, that, that, that is a really, you know, hard thing to get right, no matter how easy or complex the underlying product is. Um um, and, you know, maybe those like student classes you did were a really, really formative experience to like help you push that, uh, uh, you know, bar really high. Well, you know, on, those are on amazing self-serve. because what that really showed me is if people get confused at any step, then they'll just go away. Like right, it was just really right. interesting. Like people always get confused. And like we thought it was so obvious what to do, but like, um, you know, I mean, that's like worse than a bug. It's show stopping. If like someone can't right. figure out how to like just paste the authentication token into their right. code, you'll never see them to complain about it. So <laughs> right, I felt lucky right. that we had those those classes to torture students <laughs> with in, in the early days. Maybe the question I really want to ask you is, you know, if you were starting weight send biases now versus, you know, you had you started in 2018. Like in hindsight, like would you do anything differently? Like, is there a different set of use cases or a different way that you would build awaits and biases? Like the product itself, not the long-term vision, which I think is you know super well aligned to the future that uh, we are all probably going to live in. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I would do now, and that I'm like trying to do now, is I right. think that. Um, I think that the software developers now really can do a lot of ML. And that's different than a few years ago. So I think that's like the big change. And and like, I guess for me, I view it as a sort of expansion of our user persona, but they have like different needs and coming from like a little bit of a different um, place. I mean, I, I think like, you know, when you're a startup, you can adapt so much faster than, you know, a big company to what's going on. And so I would, you know, I would be like all in, I think on like, you know, LLMs and like, how do we support this? And of course, like, you don't see a lot of production use cases yet, but, um, you know, I, I think it's obvious that the stuff like works super well. It's unclear, like what tools need to be made to, you know, make those work. But um, we're also trying to do that. So please don't compete with me. <laughs> right. We won't. Um, 
maybe switching gears a little bit to, uh, you know, how you've built your team. I think you grew a lot during the pandemic. Like that was like a bulk of, you know, you, I think you went from like about 20 people to the the team you are now. Um, what, what's been your approach to, you know, leadership or what are kind of lessons from the Crowdflower days that you brought to the new company with you and, and how are you trying to create a strong connected culture? Well, I think like one thing that I really, really am obsessed with is um, uh, goals and like orienting around goals. And that's even like, I think something I'm obsessed with when we're like four people, but it's like just more and more um, important as we grow. Like you sort of have uh, like alignment naturally with four people. But even then it's like, there's questions like, should we be oriented towards optimizing revenue or optimizing like active users or right. optimizing uh, retention. And I think it's like that clarity on like what, you know, we're trying to do, I think is something I'm really like obsessed with because I've just like watched people, you know, get confused and get like misaligned and like thrashed. I think especially when we're uh, like a remote team, we try to have like real clarity. And then I think also like, I think just as I get older, I'm more obsessed with like writing things down because it just feels like a much more scalable way to communicate than um, talking face to face. So, you know, we create like a lot of docs, which I actually just think is a better way to, um, you know, to run a business. I think like when you talk, it can be like a little bit like sloppy and people forget. Like, I think it's just like, you know, kind of written documentation. And probably some people that work from there, like, listen, it's like laughing, like we should do like more of that. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm definitely, I do like way, way, way more of that than um, than I used to. And and like, actually, as we've gotten bigger, like Crowdflower kind of got to about a hundred people and like stalled out. Like we, I think we were like 130 or 40 when we sold, but it was a much slower run. And so I kind of thought like a lot of like best practices that executives um, you know, coming from like a Facebook or something would bring, were just like unbelievably stupid. Like I, I was, I just sort of thought like when people go to big companies, like something happens to their brain where they just like get all these like dumb, like, you know, orientation. But now I kind of realize like why it happens. Like when you're scaling fast, you really do have this different set of challenges. Um, but I think it's important not to like, you know, when you're small, obviously copy what like a, like a really high growth company right. is doing. It's like so bad, right? Because it's like, you just do exactly the wrong, um, you know, thing in a, in a lot of cases. So. I'm, I'm curious, like, what would be your advice for, you know, early stage founders and developers that are, you know, trying to like build their first product, build prototypes that are AI native today? Like, what would be your advice for like, how to think about, you know, focusing on like the end customer, the product, the use cases versus figuring out like all of this like infrastructure and what are the right choices to make around infrastructure and tools and what what would be what would be your advice? Like are you are you writing the, you know, definitive guide to building ML products <laughs> sponsored by Wade's advices? <laughs> and then you know, what, what would the intro say? <laughs> Well, I don't know if this is ML specific, but I just feel like everyone gets this wrong. So it's worth saying, which like, I would just like make something for like one person or two people or three people um, and go from there. Like everybody's worried that they're going to like end up doing consulting or something. But like, I just don't think that really happens that much. Like I, I just, like when we launch a new product, for example, we don't 
you know, for the beginning, try to grow it as fast as possible. We try to build it for like specific people that we know and we talk about and try to make them really happy. And I think it's even okay to like prioritize like the weird things that they want, like out of like respect for their time, you know, like where you're like just sort of quickly iterating on like, okay, you like want that weird thing. Fine. We'll do it. You know, just because it's, it's actually, even now we have like a huge amount of reach. Like I think we have a good brand. Um, We have all these customers. Yeah, when we want something new, nobody wants to use it. They still don't want to use it. You know, and it's like, you just have to like, um, I think like one thing that people don't realize, and I think even YC doesn't tell you well enough, is how much people are like not interested in like what you're doing and like how much you have to like bang people, um, you know, to use your software. I mean, I, I still like, I mean, I have all these like tricks, essentially like SDR tricks of like, you know, send tons of reminders to like email people like over. I expect to email people like a million times before they'll meet with me. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then when we get feedback, it's like golden. I think like once you actually show somebody that you really will like implement yeah. the stuff they're asking for, I, I think then you have like a friend for life too. Like, um, so that's, that's like my, my big advice is like make a really small number of people really happy. It's yeah, harder no, to do than you think. That's really great advice. And I actually have a hot take from our previous uh, podcast episode where um, the co-founder of Amplitude, Curtis, and I were talking about exactly this, which is like, what is the approach you take to idea validation, message testing, prototyping for different types of products? And what the two of us kind of like landed on was, you know, if you are, if the promise of the product, right, the idea you're trying to validate is something that, you know, plenty of people have promised for a long time. Your customers are not paying attention anymore. They're like, yeah, I have been pitched that snake oil again and again. So until you have something that is like, like truly like working, like, you know, I don't have to like imagine it like it's real. Don't bother me. Right. Like it's, it's just not. As opposed to if you're doing something where the problem is new and, you know, no one's really made promises about it before, it's way easier to, like, do idea validation just with, like, message testing that, okay, this is something people are looking for, they'll pay attention. As opposed to for, you know, problems that are more evergreen, even if the problem is big and deep, people are paying less attention because they're kind of, you know, jaded. Right. Like they've already like seen it, heard it too often. So they're tuning it out now. So that was, that was, I a- think, I, I have to say, I don't know if I agree with that. I think people always tune you out. Like <laughs> I've never had the experience. I feel like I'm usually making a new product in like a new space. And I, I just feel like no one pays attention to me in, in any scenario. Like you might just be thinking, you know, like in a different market. But I, mean, I think it's just the universal experience. And I'll say my co founder, Chris, is like a genius of this. I think the more you can make your like demo look like it's real, like in all the little details, like people show me demos. It's like, don't put demo in the URL. You know what I mean? Like, don't like, and our our engineers, they like want to like, you know, with the demos, they want to put all these like warnings on it. And it's like, you can't, you can't do that. Right. Like you gotta like, you got to like show somebody something and like really be like, this is the thing. You know, it's like, you can't just be like hedging, like, oh, oh, this is like a weird demo. Like you gotta like really show them something real to get any feedback. Because if he, if somebody thinks they're looking at a demo or worse, like a PowerPoint, they just don't actually really engage with it. 
Yeah, uh, like show show me the show me the thing walking. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is awesome. Um, so listeners, if you love this, uh, there is more of it. Weights and Biases has an awesome podcast hosted by Lucas called Gradient Descent. It's one of my favorite ML podcasts. Please go check it out. And Lucas, thank you so much for joining us today. I enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sankhya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.